This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. I think it's really too bad if folks get derailed off of a career they initially were really interested in because they get into one environment that's a bad fit. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we open the mailbag to answer your questions about technician jobs and feeling lonely in the lab. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 177. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. 177 episodes, Dan. I know that is only one more than the last episode that we did, but that that struck me as a big number as I was reading it. Every time, Josh, they're going to keep increasing, and every time you're going to get excited about it. Yeah, let me tell you what I'm I'm excited about, Josh. Uh, This past week, I visited your old stomping ground, the the birthplace of Joshua Hall. Not really the birthplace, but your scientific birthplace, (laughs) really. Oh, yeah, you were in my old college town. That's right, Williamsburg, Virginia. I, I visited the College of William and Mary. Did you see my old PI? I did not. I, I really intended to go interview him and find out what kind of a student you were, but we ran out of time, didn't quite make it there. Beautiful town, uh, ate some really good food there, and it was really fun, but no, I didn't get to your old lab, unfortunately. I said this to you over text, Dan, but I want to say it here. Lots of colleges claim to be the most beautiful campus, but... I think William and Mary might actually be. Well, I, I'll take that challenge, and I'd love to hear from other listeners about whether your college town or your college campus is the best. I know that for a lot of researchers and scientists, uh, there's the nice part of campus where the undergrads go, and then there's the graduate school part of campus, and, and that's true at UNC. Like, they're just very different campuses. I think that's true for some totally. other schools I've visited. So. As a listener to this podcast, you may not have seen the pretty part of your campus. Go walk around a little bit and find out. (laughs) Maybe my undergrad campus, which was primarily an undergrad campus, at least in the sciences, maybe it was the lack of grad students that kept the energy positive. (laughs) That's right. They kept things looking nice. (laughs) Maybe so. All right, Dan. Well, I am actually speaking of travels. I'm going to see you in person uh, in just a couple days when I do some traveling down to North Carolina. So that's going to be a lot of fun and looking forward to that. And uh, you and I will probably have a beer together, but but today we are sampling something that is, I think, a little bit unusual for us. Tell us what we have. All right, Dan. I guess you could call this the start of a mini-series. Regular listeners will know we covered a few different types of IPAs. I know you, Dan, have become somewhat interested in Belgian-style ales. And so for the next couple of episodes, I picked up a few different types of Belgians for us to enjoy here on the show. How does that sound? That sounds good to me. I'm anxious to learn more. Hopefully you'll also teach me something about them. Well, I will try. But let's start with this one, which is from Avery Brewing in Boulder, Colorado. And this is the Lilikowai Capolo Belgian style white ale with passion fruit and spices. Um, I will say, Dan, I was That's looking this one up. I was looking. Well, I was looking this one up, and it has a very, certainly very Hawaiian inspired, um, given the name and the artwork on the can. Um, I did look this one up, and I believe it has been renamed the Island Rascal. Renamed? 
Okay, interesting. So so I should not have opened this. This could have been a collector's item, is what you're telling I me. I think it might have been. So you, if you find this out in the wild, it may be the Lilacoi Capolo Belgian-style ale or the Island Rascal Belgian-style white ale. But as far as I can tell, it's the same beer. But let me tell you about it. So our friends at Avery described this beer as inspired by our love for the tangy and bold passion fruit of Hawaii, combines the lusciousness of a Belgian-style wheat ale with the juiciness and electric tingle of passion fruit. It's a perfect companion to breakfast, the beach, and, of course, barbecues. Okay. <laughs> breakfast. Okay, that recommend that. Out. <laughs> this is a great breakfast beer. <laughs> I mean, it is a little bit It's a little bit juicy. I will give it that. It's, it's got like an, uh, a citric flavor. It sure does. And, you know, actually, uh, after... I laughed at this earlier and just now. I, I could almost see this is a very fruity beer. I could almost see this like a mimosa feel uh, to it. Could you see that? <laughs> so you're advocating for breakfast beer. Is that where we are now, Josh? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just going with what they what they give me here. Okay. Uh, but what do you think of the stand? This really surprised me. This is not at all what I expected when I saw. Okay, this is a Belgian white ale. Took a drink and it it actually caught me off guard. To be quite honest with you, what did you think? Yeah, this is more in line with the shandy we had. I, I guess there are, you know, it's, it's got that thicker mouthfeel that I guess I would expect from a Belgian, but this doesn't taste. If I were to say, hey, try this Belgian beer, is really typical of how Belgian beers taste, this is not it. Yeah, I would, I would not have, if you gave me this blind and told me to name three types of beer that this, this is. Belgian would not have been one of the types. Shandy I mean, would this have been the first really, type. Um, uh, I think for me, I would have said this is sort of a, a sour or a ghost-style beer. It's definitely got a tanginess to it that I do not normally associate with a Belgian-style beer. You know, I think I was getting uh, maybe some pineapple, which I think would make sense with the, the Hawaiian theme. Uh, I think I'm less familiar with the passion fruit flavor profile so maybe that is what comes across but i i don't dislike it still but tasty. i don't know that i would recommend it as a belgian style beer because it's so far afield from what i would normally classify as a belgian which again it's not a knock on this beer uh, but maybe just on the description delicious beer doesn't taste like a belgian I, I think we can i think you can like it and not think it tastes like the thing it's called i think that's fair Absolutely. So anyway, interesting beer to try, one that I would recommend you pick up and give a shot. It will either be the Lilacoai Capolo or the Island Rascal. All right, Dan. Well, this was, uh, this was great. I'll look forward to having a beer with you in person later this week. But for now, why don't we say thank you to our friends at Promega? Josh, I know that a lot of our listeners are thinking about their career and they have some goals in mind, but you need to make sure that you and your PI are on the same page. And you can do that by creating an individual development plan. That's uh, abbreviated IDP. It ties together your responsibilities to the learning objectives and professional growth. And you can learn how to write one by visiting promega.com slash hello IDP. Sounds like a good plan to me. Well, for now, let's talk about our listeners' careers with our mailbag. All right, Dan, we got some listener mail. Indeed we did. I will get right to it, Josh. The first email comes from an anonymous writer 
that is going by the name Fubar. You'll understand this in a minute. One second. So, hi, Joshua and Daniel. Please let me just say first that I really enjoy and appreciate your podcast, and hearing about the situations and challenges happening to fellow students around the world really helped me, both giving me concrete ideas and also just giving me support. And so this Fubar goes on, I'm a PhD student in Germany in computer science. And the question is, is doing a PhD and then the academic career a lonely job? Does it only depend on the job or the lab group that you join? As with every other student, I find a teeny tiny problem which lies in a subfield of a subfield and makes it the topic of my PhD studies. The group that I am in counts five people, me included, and everybody studies different problems in different subfields. Each student has their own experiments, which are not related. I'm at the point where I'm not familiar with the technical details of their work, and they are also not familiar with my experiments. Collaborations are not really encouraged, as we need first author publications, and there's no immediate comeback for them to discuss any detail of my day-to-day experiments with me. People come in and are polite, but there's not much to talk about, and our PI is incredibly busy. We get one hour a week to discuss whatever we need, and that's it. Am I under the wrong impression that PhD students and academics may work more closely? Is it normal to be 100% on your own? Most of my friends are outside the university, and they're not computer scientists. Thus, it happens often that I cannot discuss my everyday work with life with anybody. Any help or idea would be greatly appreciated, and that comes from FUBAR. And uh, the reason FUBAR is funny is because uh, when you're programming, Josh, and you need the name of a variable and you can't think of anything, you always use FUBAR. So this is very common in programming. Dan, this is why you're here. I would not have done that. I would have thought, not FUBAR. That's FUBAR. That's a... <laughs> it's got multiple meanings. Josh, was your, was your PhD training lonely? Um, no, I would, I would not classify it as particularly lonely, but, you know, I think, and I'm actually, this is another reason I'm glad you're here, Dan, is I think we, we have some different experiences post PhD also. And, you know, we, we've talked a little bit on the show. We had, had an episode a few weeks back talking about the life of a humanities PhD and some of the similarities and differences between what our experiences were doing a more biomedically focused PhD and so I think it's important for listeners and for FUBAR to know that that is our background related to graduate school. That's both of our experiences were in that setting. And so I think like you, Dan, my individual graduate school experience was not lonely, at least not in the way that, that FUBAR is mentioning. I came into lab. There were people there. We were working together as a group. We had lab meeting where we all came together. And, um, you know, I, I do identify, and we've talked about this on the show before, I do identify in certain lab experiences I've been in or been around where even in the context of those labs where you have multiple people, maybe even lots of people who are working on a similar big theme topic, that people can sort of fall in their own little individual silos working on this aspect of the question or that aspect of the question, your own individual projects. And you may only have a vague sense of what they're doing that might be related to you. And in fact, that's something we've hammered on in the past on the show as being unfortunate that science, in our view, really would progress the fastest and work the best for everyone if it were more of a team sport where people were sharing ideas, um, helping each other troubleshoot, leveraging their own strengths. And But that's not always the case even in less structurally isolating environments than what FUBAR is describing. Um, But I could imagine, you know, Dan, I worked with a graduate student, I have worked with graduate students in the recent past who have been in more bioinformatics and computational type labs. 
And I've certainly worked with students who had the same experience that FUBAR is talking about, where they felt really isolated, especially during the pandemic, actually, I'll say, Dan, because a lot of labs like that realized, well, there's no need for us to be here. We're working on the computer every day doing coding, so let's just all work from home. And I think that works okay for some people, but I know a lot of other students that did feel very isolated in that environment. So so I'd be curious to hear from you, Dan, your experience working with programmers and computational folks specifically. Is this just par for the course? If you're going to be in those types of jobs, you're going to be more on your own with your computer, or is there a way to find socialization there? Yeah, I think it's it's a really nuanced question too. And, and like you said, my lab experience was not lonely. Um, we were all working on the same protein. So maybe this is a, a question of biomedical versus computer science, and maybe those are the differences. I don't think that you have to relegate yourself to being lonely in a lab. I don't, you know, I, I think it is possible to be in a lab where everybody works independently and they don't talk to each other. And I think it's probably possible to find labs where they are more collaborative. And FUBAR should not condemn herself to being lonely in lab as an academic for the rest of her life. I think it's possible to find labs and, and she should use this as a criteria in her next search. So if she's going to do a postdoc or go on to another position, make sure you figure out how collegial, whether you can be working with other people, whether your goals can align and so people can work together. So I'll say that. Um, I really do appreciate your comment, Josh, about COVID because there could be this aspect of people not wanting to socialize together. You know, when I was in lab, we would go to lunch together or we would get coffee or we would do things that were social outside of the lab. And so maybe we weren't working on the same experiment, but we did have time together and, and to be social together. And that maybe that has gone away. I don't know um, what the situation is where FUBAR is studying, but um, I, I would keep that in mind as a, this may be temporary and not permanent. Yeah. And, you know, Dan, regardless of what is behind it, what has led to the environment being this way, the reality is that FUBAR is experiencing this situation in a very isolating way. And there are clearly, there are clearly things that she wants in a workplace, boxes that are not being checked for her in this current environment. And so, you know, that's one thing that, that we've said to students before, whether it's talking about the way people interact or the way the advisor treats you or doesn't treat you. You know, every experience you have, you're making this mental checklist of what are things about this experience that are really working for me? What are things about this experience that are not working for me? And that is all useful information. Even the things that aren't going perfectly can be extremely insightful as you look for your next position and your next work environment. Because now you're learning, well, this is something that I ideally am going to have as part of a work environment. So you can make sure when you go to your next step that that, that is part of what you have. Yeah, and, and I just, uh, that's exactly right. I just wanted to allay the fear that this is how all of academia is. That it's not how all of academia is. Um, I do have a concern here about the comment that we're not encouraged to collaborate because we need first author publications. I think that's a little bit toxic, this notion that we can't even talk together or work together because then we wouldn't get our first author papers. I think that's that's a hint of a lab that is there's something going on there that is not good for research and not good for the people doing the research. I don't like the sound of that personally. Yeah, I totally agree, Dan. And I don't know, that sounds like it could be something that's coming from the PI, I would imagine. But but in some ways, or actually many ways, that is 
the antithesis of academia, you know, where the, it, I mean, academia, that is really a, a, a factor of academia that's completely different than industry, for example, is theoretically it's the open sharing of ideas and information with right. other people. And so collaboration should be a very important part of that. And honestly, if the scientists that I know who are the most successful and well-regarded in their fields, being enthusiastic collaborators is a common thread. Yeah. And, and that's another thing I would want FUBAR to be looking for in that next position. And the last thing that I want to say is there's a subtext here that FUBAR is researching a, a subfield of a subfield. And, and uh, you and I had this experience, Josh. I was, I was working on a single amino acid <laughs> in a protein in a certain cell type, right? There aren't a lot of people on Earth that are going to get excited about that with me. Um, but they do exist. And, and if I were to come home and I were to tell my partner or my friend or somebody about it, there's no way that they would be able to engage in that conversation with me because that's not, A, it's not interesting to them. B, they don't have the background to be excited about it. And so what I would encourage FUBAR to do is there's the social side, there's the social interactions that I hope you can have in lab with the human beings that are there regardless of your research. And then there's that intellectual engagement that you're really only going to get from other people in your field that also have the context and the background that you have. And I think it's okay to keep those two things separate. Maybe the people in your lab don't have the context and the background to be excited about the research that you're doing, but there are people out there that do. And I think finding those communities, um, realizing I want to be able to have lunch with people in my lab, but I want to be able to discuss my research with somebody on Twitter, on academic Twitter, or at a conference, or over email, or whatever it is. But being able to find those two separate communities so that you can kind of satisfy your social needs and also your intellectual needs. Yeah, I think that's great advice, Stan. And Fubar, I hope you, you take that to heart and realize that the folks in your research group are not the totality of the people who might be out there to be part of your network. And then I think the last thing I want to say about this is really circling back. I think you identified something really key out of this message, that red flag about collaborations not being encouraged. And I almost wonder if a consequence of an advisor who maybe has this viewpoint, who has this, yeah, who has this point of view in how they do science, that trickles down into the way the people in the lab interact with each other. True. Yeah. Just, I don't think many people would thrive in an environment like that. Yeah. And I don't think there are, I don't think this is common. So I would definitely encourage Fubar to go do some informational interviews, talk to people in other groups, find people in your department there are others out there and find out how common this is. I, you and I did not do computer science PhDs, Josh. Maybe everybody is lonely and nobody speaks to each other. I'd love to hear from our listeners about your experience, particularly if you're in those fields. Yeah. And Dan, if I may, uh, could I go on one brief tangent that's related to this? Until my battery runs out, Josh. <laughs> you know, I was, I was talking to a student the other day, Dan, who had was having a very different issue than, than Fubar is describing here. Um, but, but the common thread was the student was realizing that they had this viewpoint that they really didn't like science. They really decided that doing research in the lab was, was really not for them as a career. But as they reflected on it a little bit more, they realized that as they were, especially as they were thinking about their next steps after grad school, they realized actually 
they did still like research, but they just didn't really like the environment that they had been doing research in as a grad student. And I think that's a real pitfall of the model that, that graduate school currently sits within is because it would be very easy for, for someone like Fubar, who seems like a very enthusiastic and motivated and positive um, researcher who's writing into us with this perception of, you know what, this is the experience that I have. This is the way I have experienced academia and research. So if this is how it is, I don't know that I want any part of that. Right. If, if this is forever, I don't want to be part of it. Yeah, this is not what I want to do. But the truth is, this is what that lab environment is like. Um, and there are many environments out there that might be 180 degrees different for that might be a great fit for you. And so I, I just say that to anyone out there who's listening who maybe is in an, a, re, a lab environment that's just not working for you or you have a mentor that's just not supportive in the way you need them to be supportive – you know, as you think about your next steps and think about your career, I think it's really too bad if folks get derailed off of a career they initially were really interested in because they get into one environment that's a bad fit, that it's not really the passion goes away for the science, but it's just they're in a really bad spot for them with that environment. Yeah. And unfortunately, most of us don't get to try out 100 labs and say, oh, 92% are great. We try out one or two. And you, you know, your sample size is so small. Hopefully, you had a good experience, but it's it's quite possible that you only had a bad experience in one lab, and you think this must be how it is everywhere. Yeah, that's totally true. Ready for the next question, Josh? Let's go for it. This one comes from Grant. Grant writes, "Thanks for your inspiring pod. I have a bachelor's in, I have a bachelor's degree, and want to get research experience in order to attend grad school." and like the recommendation to become a lab tech first. I'm considering a two-year program that would make me a medical lab technician, but I'm not sure this is the kind of lab tech experience grad schools would value. I don't think it would count as research experience. What are your thoughts? Josh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I was thinking a little bit about this today, Dan, and, and it got me thinking a little bit about why do we choose any job? And I think there are a few different reasons that you might take a job. And I'll point out... I'll point out three of them here, but there are probably more. But here's three that I came up with that I think could be relevant to this discussion. I mean, the first reason you might take a job is you need money. And here's an opportunity to reason. do a job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess at some level, that's why most of us, unless you're just independently wealthy, that's why all of us work. Uh, I know, Dan, you would probably, if not for the pesky need for money, you would probably be content to not go into your job and to mess around in your garden all day. That is quite possible, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so sometimes we have a job opportunity that's in front of us and we need the funds, we need the finances, and so we take the job because we need that job at that moment. Uh, but secondly, sometimes we might choose a job because it really is a dream job and it's an opportunity that is a total match for your skills and your interests or your passions. Now, I don't think we all arrive at that opportunity early in our professional career. Some people it's probably It's rare do. to start there. It, it is rare to start there. So I think the third reason we take jobs might be really common for many of our listeners and was certainly common for us, especially after grad school. And that is you hope that this job will move you closer 
to landing that dream job mentioned previously. So maybe this is going to give you some kind of experience or exposure or networking that's going to then move you closer to ultimately that thing that you hope to do. And so going back to Grant's email and question, I think it's really important for Grant to think about this opportunity to do this program that's going to make him a medical lab technician and think about, okay, well, does doing that check off any of these boxes? So maybe it's paid and maybe this is an opportunity that he has and he doesn't have another opportunity to get paid in this moment. And so this is the best option. However, if it's not just about that, if I'm kind of thinking it might be the latter because of the way Grant talks about it, you know, Grant says, I want to get research experience in order to attend grad school. So it sounds like Grant is looking at that third option where, you know what, I'm looking for a job that's going to help move me closer to the thing I want to do, which is go to grad school. And so I'm not sure if this is the right job to do that. And and I want to be clear, actually, this is a great, I'm, Grant, I'm glad you wrote in because I think this helps us to clarify some specifics of something we mention a lot on the show. Um, you know, we have said multiple times when we've answered questions or talked about gaining experience prior to going to grad school, you know, we've given the advice, you know, go out and get a lab tech position or work as a lab tech for a few years. And I we say it as if everybody knows what that means. Exactly, exactly. And this is a great, um, you know, this is a great case in point that that's not a one size fits all definition. So what Grant is talking about is talking about a position that would enable him to be a medical lab technician. And so, Dan, I actually looked up medical lab technician just to make sure we're clear what that means. So a medical technician is a medical professional who works in the healthcare industry and provides support for physicians and hospitals. And so medical technicians will do things in the hospital or at the clinic, like testing blood samples in the lab, looking at tissue samples to help doctors make informed decision about treatment plans. So they're really working with patient samples in a clinical context. And when I say lab tech, that is not at all what I mean. Like that, that those is are, not that at all what you mean. A very distinct career from what those words mean to me as somebody who worked in a in a biomedical research lab. So I, I assume that's where you're going. But wow, I I don't think I thought about the word lab tech meaning somebody who's running blood and diagnostic tests. So I'm, I am also glad Grant wrote in because we need to be more precise here. So tell us the difference, Josh. Yeah, yeah. So what, what we mean, and again, this is for Grant or anyone else, if your goal is to go to a research-based graduate program like a PhD program in the biomedical sciences, for example, when we say one avenue to get there is to become a lab technician, we mean getting a job in a research lab where you're a lab that's focused on answering basic science questions or translational questions, where you're going to be doing experiments, trying to better understand how disease works or how other, you know, other life processes function, which is very different than working in a hospital, trying to help diagnose patients. You're trying to answer research questions. So again, these are very distinct and different things. And I do agree with you, Grant, you know, if you go the medical technician route that you're discussing, I think that that is a career path, but that's not necessarily the most direct path towards a graduate school program. Yeah, I think the piece that that is different for a medical technician versus what we're talking about when we say a lab tech is that 
inquiry-based learning. So we have a hypothesis. We're, you know, we're employing the scientific method. We have a hypothesis, and we come up with experiments that are going to test that hypothesis, and then we come to a conclusion. Whereas when you are working as a medical technician, you may process samples for an individual person, but you are not uncovering new aspects of, of that person's physiology or the way the body works or the way the disease progresses. You are taking each individual patient and you're assigning them uh, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to make this sound like it is less than because it is very val- valuable and important. But you're taking that patient and you're maybe assigning them a disease score or a, you're doing a blood test to find out if they have a certain marker. You are you are helping inform that doctor and that patient in the treatment, but you are not necessarily uncovering something new about how the human body works. And so what we're talking about when when Josh has basic research. It is really that scientific method process applied to discovering something new uh, about the world or about how disease works. That's absolutely right, Dan. And and that's what research program. That's what a PhD is about. And so that's what this is what admissions committees are looking for. They're looking for your experience doing that scientific method, uncovering new insights by being a lab technician. That's that's exactly right. And, and I think it's worth saying, just to be totally clear here, you know, this is a subtle point, but it's one, Dan, that I know I know you are also passionate about making, is, you know, Grant and a lot of people write in and they, they ask questions about, you know, how can I be more competitive for graduate school? How can I get experience so that I can go to graduate school? And those are great questions to ask. But again, I think it's important to frame these experiences in helping you to decide if doing research is the thing you like to do and you want to do. And then if the answer to that is yes, you get in these environments, you do research, inquiry-based research, Dan, as you described it, and you think, this is really cool. This is definitely, I want more of this. Then you know and you feel confident to take that next step to apply for graduate programs. And oh, by the way, you are going to be more competitive for those programs based on the experiences you have. But you know what? You may get in those experiences and think, yeah, this is way too open-ended. There's, this is not at all what... It's boring. It's repetitive. It's lonely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm totally isolated and I'm not allowed to talk to anyone. uh, So I don't think I want to do this. No, that's Um, a subtle point, Josh, and I'm glad you made it. I went, I, I did undergraduate research in order to get into graduate school. But I didn't do undergraduate research to learn whether or not I liked research. If I had if I had looked at it from that perspective, I would have realized, oh, I don't really like research. I shouldn't go to grad school. <laughs> but it was, for me, a stepping stone to a thing I decided I wanted as opposed to a learning experience to find out what I wanted. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Yeah, as you said that, Dan, I was reflecting, and I realized I got involved in research for the very first time as an undergrad because I didn't know what else to do. You know, I was a biology major and realized I didn't want to do med school, which is what most of the other biology majors were doing in my department. And so I met with my advisor and said, hey, I think science is interesting in my classes, but I don't really know what to do with the rest of my life. And she said, well, have you thought about research? And I was like, no, I literally had never thought of that. I didn't even know that was a thing that I could do that that happens here. So, you know, there are many, many roundabout ways to, to eventually get there, but, but no better way to find out if science is your thing, no matter how you first get there than to just do it. 
And Grant, that's what I think we want for you is we want to make sure that you are getting the right experience for what you want to do. That's right. And, and I think Grant will do that. Um, you know, I, I think it's a great question to ask and it's a great time to be asking it. And I have full confidence that Grant, you know, you have this option open to do the, the medical tech program, but there's probably also opportunities if you know the right people to ask. And so now's your chance to go find those research labs at the university and see if they have openings for lab techs and decide, look at the job description. Does it sound like it would be interesting to you or not? And uh, it's your chance to get started on that path if you want to do it. Yeah. And, and the last thing I want to say, Dan, is there's not there's not a wrong choice here, Grant. You know, what I don't want you to do is, you know, you've got this opportunity lined up and you're excited about it. And then a couple bozos like us on this podcast say, no, wait, Grant, no, you should try to find a different type of lab tech position and, and confuse things. This might also be a type of experience that there are things about that you're really interested in that you want to try at this stage of your life. And, you know, I had a really good friend in graduate school who was a PhD student in my lab. We started at the same time and she got her start as a medical lab technician, um, just like you're describing Dan, she, or Dan Grant. And so she did that for a while and she was really interested in that at the time. And it was really her experience doing that type of work that got her even more interested in learning more about the science behind some of these tests and some of these diseases she was encountering on a day-to-day -day basis as a medical technician. And that ultimately led her to get some research experience and go on to graduate school later on. So, so there's not one true path to get there. And yeah, so I, I think that perspective is important to share too. Right. And there's that connection to the patient for the medical lab tech that some people are really motivated and, and they end up, maybe they end up doing basic research, but they do something more translational or their research takes them to the hospital to do experiments with actual patients. And so I, I agree with you, Josh, there, there are many paths into this career and you just have to try something out and, and see what it is that appeals to you about each of these job descriptions you'll kind of know in your gut, does this sound interesting to me or does this sound like drudgery? And, and that'll help guide you into the right place. Absolutely. All right. Well, really want to say thank you to, uh, to Grant and to Fubar who wrote in with these questions. I hope this was helpful. Please follow up and, and let us know how things go. And certainly if anyone else out there has a question or topic that you'd like for us to discuss on the show, we would love to hear about it. You can email us podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform. We love getting your feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. You can go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money, and thanks to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. All right, Dan, it was a pleasure uh, recording with you tonight. We'll see you next time. Actually, we'll see you this week, Josh. See you this week, Dan, and thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs>